So I want to begin this morning by telling you a story that happened in January of 2015. I was going up for my really big interview as part of Methodist ordination. Uh, it was my P&Q interview, preparations and qualifications. And to get to this point, you've gone through a series of other interviews and meetings and you've written a lot of paperwork. Um, you've written about 30 to 35 pages answering theological questions. You've submitted a couple sermons for them to review. You submit a Bible study. You have references. You submit transcripts. You write your call story. There's a lot that comes to this point. And then on top of that, um, to complete your work, you have to send it to other clergy to look over so they can give edits and uh, suggestions and whatnot. And then, if you really want to prepare for your interview, you have a series of mock interviews and you try to get other clergy and maybe some lay people to help um, test, run questions by you, I guess. And so you get to this point and it's very, very nerve-wracking. And uh, the interviews take place usually at Prothrow up in Pottsboro, Texas, where the Methodist Church has a camp. And there are three different rooms that the Board of Ordained Ministry, or BOM, um, they are in the three different rooms. And there's about 10 to 15 people in each room, a mix of clergy and lay. And they've read your paperwork, they've reviewed your sermons, they've read and watched everything. And there's usually three candidates that go at the same time. So you rotate through the three different rooms and you spend about 20 to 30 minutes in each room. And then after you're done, you go back to the main lodge, you and the other two candidates, and you sit and you wait. And you wait as they discuss and deliberate if you are going to pass. Now, I remember they're sitting there with one candidate, and the other candidate was actually my husband, Scott, who was actually going up for his interview as well. And through the glass doors, I could see a few of the board members coming, and they take my husband, Scott, and the other candidate one direction, and then I follow people and take a hard left to go to this different room. And I know that if you go to that room, it means I didn't pass. More on that in a little bit. The story of David and Goliath is one, I think I can say, is probably pretty well known. We've all read it most likely at one time or another, or kind of know the gist of it. I mean, the term Goliath has become kind of a pop culture um, reference. You know, this person is my Goliath. This project is my Goliath. But we know the story, right? It's a little shepherd boy that defeats this giant, this huge warrior named Goliath with a slingshot, right? That's what we know. Probably didn't look like this, even, not even a little bit, actually. But we love it because we're like, yeah, the little guy takes down the big warrior. But as I was going through this story again, preparing for this message, there was something else that I got out of it. And a lot of people have kind of gone into this story. Malcolm Gladwell, the author, has a book on David and Goliath, and he talks about how Goliath maybe wasn't that big and scary. I would encourage you to read that or watch his TED Talk. There's a lot um, in there. But I was struck by something else in this story. So we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit. Um, there's some verses uh, in your bulletin, but I, I cut them down because my first run-through of the sermon was 
30 minutes long, and I thought, oh, I should probably cut a little bit. So uh, we're going to start in verse 4, and we'll just follow along. So 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistine, uh, the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spears was like a weaver's beam, and his spears had weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. So pretty good introduction of Goliath. We get a picture of probably what he looked like. Now we skip down to verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So not a lot about David. Then it talks about his brothers a little bit. Verse 17, we find out that David, you know, David didn't come to fight Goliath. He actually came to bring 10 loaves and some cheese. So David invented the charcuterie board, apparently, right here in 1 Samuel. So very exciting. And then Goliath, and that joke also did not work at 845, but I tried it again. So we're going to try it again at 11 to see if they... So we go on, and, and Goliath is, you know, shouting and smack talk, and then there's you know, back and forth, like, who's going to fight me? He's been there for 40 days waiting for someone to be bold enough to fight him. Um, and then, let's see, and then David's like, well, I mean, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So then this is where we're going to uh, jump back in the story, verse 34. So this is David telling Saul why he should be um, able to do it. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth, and if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. David clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. They took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and put them in the shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And then we know what happens after that. He approaches Goliath, and he gets his slingshot and aims and takes with one stone, hits Goliath between the eyes. Goliath falls, and then in turn of events, David uses Goliath's own sword and cuts off his head. Didn't see that coming. It's a wonderful bedtime uh, Bible story for your children, for sure. So in this story, you know, I think about, okay, Goliath is introduced as this huge, scary warrior, right? Six cubits in a span, which... um, 
turns out to be about nine feet and nine inches. He has a bronze helmet. His coat of mail, which is 5,000 shekels, that converts to about 125 pounds. He has bronze on his legs, a javelin. The spear on his javelin made out of iron is about 15 pounds. And of course, he has a sword. It's one of the most detailed and longest descriptions of someone in the Bible. And then David, I mean, if you didn't even know who David was, you kind of just skip over him. You might think, well, I don't need to remember his name. I don't think he's going to do anything in this story. So immediately I see these, this contrast between these two characters. And again, Goliath has been waiting there, and I'm sure soldiers had tried to battle him. I'm sure they had been using Goliath for a long time. And I'm sure a lot of very overly confident soldiers like, well, I can do it. And they probably did the same thing only to have the same outcome, right? No one had been able to defeat Goliath. And it made me think about how maybe some of us have tried the same thing over and over again, expecting different results only to find we have the same outcome. I often think about how we get comfortable, maybe stuck in our ways too. We start to coast, or maybe we just really dig our heels in and think, well, our ways, our ideas, our practices, our tricks, those are what are going to work. But the part that really got my attention is verses 38 through 40, when Saul gives his armor to David. Now, I don't know a lot about armor, but I have to imagine if you are fairly high-ranking, you've proved yourself in war before that you probably have good quality armor. And what makes armor really quality or uh, useful is when it fits you well, right? You don't want it to be too big or too small or have gaps in it because then you're vulnerable to um, injury. And so it's molded for you. It's a comfort. It's, it's fit just for you. Which is why I think it's so funny that Saul, this grown man, tries to give his armor to this boy. It wasn't meant for David. There's actually this old painting of David trying to put the armor on. As you can see, he's struggling. He can't even stand up. I think he looks like those um, inflatable things at like car dealerships, you know? Like he's just like, oh gosh, I can't, I can't stand up. But I think there's something that is communicated when, Day, or when Saul gives this armor to him, and it's, that's where I want to spend a majority of our time this morning. The three things that I think he's trying to say is, look, this has always worked for me, so it's going to work for you. Second, this is who you should be. And three, this is what makes you a winner. So let's talk about those. The first, it's always worked for me, so it's going to work for you. Essentially, Saul is saying, look, I know, I know how to go about this problem. I know how to fix it. And I think about how, for us, it's very easy, it's very tempting to tell people um, what to do based on our experience, our expertise, all of that. But I'm finding that just because something worked for us doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. For one thing, we're all very different people, right? We're all unique. And times are different. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of um, instances where um, our expertise, our experience is very helpful, but that's not always the case. 
And so even though we try to be helpful, we have to be careful about how much we interject or maybe shoot down ideas because they're new or they're different. See, what worked 30 years ago or 15 years ago or even five years ago may not work. And I'm finding that there's plenty of paths or, or ways of life or perspectives or, or problem solving that I don't understand and that I may not even agree with. But I do know that expecting people to behave a certain way or do things like us is not always helpful. And the old way is not always the best way. I think when we continue to do the same thing over and over again, we aren't allowing the Holy Spirit to maybe do something new. My goodness, I see that in the church all the time, is that we keep doing the same thing, and then we wonder, like, why, why is there not a different outcome, or why are not more people or new people coming? It's because we have to be open to new things. And I believe in this story, David allowed something new to happen. He didn't listen to the other people and say, okay, it worked, it worked for them. Clearly something was not working, and so he had to go about something different. And so for us, not only do we need to be listening for God's leading, but also to new ideas, new ways, new perspectives, and new voices. Okay, the second one. This is who you should be. So I'm raising two young kids right now. I've got a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. And already with my five-year-old, I'm starting to feel a little bit of pressure of like, is she in enough activities? Is she learning enough? Is she growing enough? Is she having enough experience? Is she going to get into college? Is she going to be able to have a 401k someday? I don't know. I think um, I'm discovering that we have a picture in our mind of how our kids should be and who they should become. But I don't know if you knew this. If, you, if you're a parent, you probably do. But uh, kids tend to come out and they just are who they are, right? Or if you have more than one kid, and like I have met families that have multiple kids raised by the same two parents, and each kid is radically different, right? And so I'm finding that when we try to force people, like, okay, no, you need to be this, you need, you need to be involved in this, no, don't do that because you may end up like that, I realize how damaging that can be when we don't let people live into who God created them to be. Forcing people to be a certain way is not helpful, and honestly, it's not very loving. So I think it, this goes beyond raising kids, but how do we... I mean, yes, how do we raise our kids, but what do we say to our spouses, our parents, our friends? How do we let them be who they are? Thirdly, this is what will make you a winner. Now, this is closely related to this is who you should be, but um, for a moment, I want us to take, uh, just think about someone. When I mention, like, who is successful, who is really important, who comes to mind? Is there someone that you think is like the model for that? Or what do you think the world says who is important? Who's worth paying attention to? See, I see this tie between this is who you should be and this will make you a winner because when we tell kids this is who you should be because if you're that, then you'll be successful, and you'll be important, and people will look up to you. But problem is there's a lot of people that don't 
fit in that box or they don't check all those boxes and so that they they're wondering well am i not important am i not valuable am i not worth listening to because somehow we've ranked okay if you accomplish this or that or you look like this or you act like that then you are someone that is important you are a winner but I know I have met plenty of brilliant and amazing and hardworking people that don't check all those boxes. Maybe they took a different path, they looked different, they believed different things, or whatever it may be. And I just think we've probably looked down on a lot of people because they didn't check all the boxes that we said, this is what matters, this is who you need to be, this is, um, or this is what makes you a winner. And that is why I love this story of David. Because he looks at that armor and he looks around probably at the other soldiers that have probably tried to do things and he says, no thanks. No thanks. That isn't me. That isn't going to work. I know it worked for you, Saul, but it's not going to work for me. And here's the really, really beautiful part also is that David, even though he's already doing something different by not wearing the armor, is that in the past when he has battled animals, you know, it's been a lot of like very physical hand to, well not hand to hand combat, hand to paw, I guess, you know, he he gets right there, but he realizes, hey, that's not even going to work in this, so let me think through what is going to work in this, this particular situation. And so he does uh, something that seems like, I don't know if this is going to work, he uses a slingshot, which again, is not like this <laughs> at all. A slingshot was very, very powerful. Uh, a slinger was very vital to battle. If you were very good at it, you were a game changer. So his sling is more like this, and when they let go, um, the rocks they used, one, were very dense, and they would go about 80 miles an hour, and when they hit someone, they had about the same damage of a 45 millimeter handgun. It was brutal. But I'm sure he felt a little nervous. I'm sure that as Saul and the other soldiers and his brothers watched what he was gonna do, I'm sure they were probably like, this is never gonna work. <laughs> but I'm so thankful that David listened and realized, you know what, I am different. I'm unique. I'm not gonna live into anyone else's um, idea of what would, uh, what would work or who to be. I'm not going to put on anyone else's armor. That's a really powerful story that teaches us a lot. And I also think there's a lesson in the fact that he has five stones with him. It makes me think, what are the five things that make me, me? What are the five things that make you, you? I think it's really important to think about those unique things that God has given you, those, those talents, those gifts, those, um, think about your values, what are those? And keep those close to you because they're powerful. They're powerful. So back to not passing my interview. It was not fun. <laughs> It was, you know, it was embarrassing. It was really, really hard. And to, 
to complicate it, my husband passed and I didn't, you know. It was a super fun car ride back to our house. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, um, I struggled in the interview, but the thing that really messed me up was that I had literally rehearsed lines and statements and phrases that people had said, hey, make sure you say this in your interview because they want to hear that, or make sure you come across this way because that's what they really love to see. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. But the truth is they didn't want to see that. They wanted to see me. They wanted to hear what I had to say, how I felt like God was calling me uniquely to the mission of the church. And so I had a whole year to figure out who I was. And it was a lot of hard work, and I had to really get out of my head what people had told me, this is the kind of leader you need to be, this is the kind of pastor you need to be, that's, if you're this and you're going to be thought of as really important, I had to get that all out of my head and just say, you know what, that's not me. So I came back a year later, three weeks after having my first child, <laughs> still on pain medicine, not able to stand up straight, but I passed because I, I leaned into who I was. I told them what I believed, how I felt like God was calling me, what I had to offer the church. I was no one else but me. I did not wear anyone else's armor. See, the voices of Saul are strong, they're loud, and they're everywhere. And they tell us to do that, be that, act like this, become that, don't act like that, don't become that. But I hope that we can drown out that voice. I hope we can drown it out. And that when we see that Goliath standing in front of us, that we realize that we only need to be ourselves and no one else. That we don't need to put on anyone else's armor. That we simply need to have our five stones and then aim. Thanks be to God. Amen.